going to talk about different teachings over the day today. So the day is going to focus on four specific connections to emptiness. The first is emptiness as it relates to the concept of self. The second is emptiness as it relates to the phenomena of the world. The third is going to be a meditation based in emptiness called abiding in emptiness. And the fourth is going to be the connection between emptiness and the nature of awareness itself. So these are the four main areas. And then at the end of the day, we're also going to bring in a fifth, which is the connection between emptiness and compassion. So that we'll touch on just briefly. But these are, this is an overview of the main themes. And if you know uh, about the history of Buddhism in India, as I sort of briefly outlined, emptiness of self was emphasized in the early teachings of the Buddha. Emptiness of phenomena was more emphasized in the Mahayana, though it's also found in the early teachings. And the empty nature of awareness was a centerpiece of the mind-only school, the Chittamatrans. So we're going to touch briefly on, on all of those. This is a very central concept in Buddhism, as I mentioned. In fact, if you had to pull one concept out of all of Buddhist history and highlight as the unique contribution of Buddhism, emptiness would be a good candidate to pull. It covers a range of liberating understandings and liberating experiences, all the way up to final enlightenment. So it's, you could say, a common thread that links together many, many doorways to freedom but as a word, it's not that inviting, is it? <laughs> you know, the Hindus have bliss and devotion. The Christians have love and charity. The Buddhists have emptiness. <laughs> so on the face of it, it sounds like it could be something kind of bleak or desolate or hopeless or despairing. And that's a little bit the connotation the word has in the West. But it's not what the Buddha meant. It's not what later generations of practitioners meant. The purpose of understanding emptiness is to free our hearts and minds. It is to bring about uh, greater freedom, greater wisdom, and greater compassion. And I would add to that greater happiness in the world. So we're not interested in looking at it as just a philosophical exercise or an intellectual exercise. We want to see how it can contribute to our freedom. And ultimately, that means to our happiness. So it's a very practical topic, and if it is not bringing the benefits that are connected with it, then one needs to reevaluate the relation to it, because this is the purpose of it. The central message in emptiness is that we are not as fixed as we take ourselves to be, and the world is not as solid as we take it to be. So there is an absence of uh, substance, an absence of emptiness, uh, sorry, an absence of essence in every phenomena that we turn to. And it's through not understanding this clearly that we get ourselves caught in suffering. So the main teaching about emptiness is how can we release ourselves from the tendency to suffer? So you all know, I'm sure, that the teaching on impermanence is a very central theme in all of Buddhism, sometimes called the centerpiece of Buddhism. I would say emptiness incorporates impermanence but takes it one step further. Let me, let me give an example. 
If you look at this body from the standpoint of impermanence, you know that over time it's going to change, right? The body gains weight, it gets injured, it develops wrinkles, the hair turns gray. All these things are long-term changes that we can see leading eventually to its decay and death. But emptiness takes that understanding one step further. We look into the way the body is put together right here and now, and we see there's nothing solid in here even for a moment. We look in the field of body sensations. They're always changing. We look at the sense doors, always changing. We look at the body from a biological point of view, and we see that the cells are always burning energy through the activity of the mitochondria and the nutrients that are being delivered through the blood system. So that combustion effect is going on every moment at the cellular level. So nothing is here that we can freeze or stop even for a moment. It's not that we have to wait three years for the gray hair to appear. There is burning and change going on moment by moment in the body even now. And it's when we see that degree of change, how nothing is constant even for a moment, that we are entering into the territory of emptiness. So impermanence tells us, don't hang on to something because at some point it's going to change. Emptiness tells us, there's nothing there to hang on to even for a moment. So give it up. That's the message. We learn not to grasp. And when we don't grasp, we can settle back into the present moment in a relaxed, open, and heartful way that allows us to be with life and be in touch with life in a place of freedom and relaxation and ease. So emptiness is the doorway to inner peace. It undoes the controlling, grasping center of self-centeredness that our culture tends to inculcate in us and the human mind likes to reinforce. So we find our way out of that contraction of self-centeredness through understanding emptiness. The Buddha said there are three avenues to learning. He called them Suttamayapanya, Chintamayapanya, and Bhavanamayapanya. And they translate to learning from hearing. And in this I would include study. You hear something spoken by someone else or you read words spoken by someone else that goes in and provides a certain amount of clarification and understanding. The ability for that to transform us is usually limited. The second means, Chintamayapanya, is learning by reflection. So we take the Dharma teachings that we've heard and we turn them over in our own minds. We use thought, but we check them against our experience. We hear a teaching like impermanence and we check it against our life against our moment-to-moment experience, and we find out, is it true for us? How true is it? To what extent is it true? Are there areas where it's not true, or is everything truly changing? And by reflecting in that way, we gain more understanding. And because it's coming from our own interests, the understanding maybe goes a little bit deeper. The third level, called bhavanamayapanya, means understanding that comes out of the practice of meditation. Bhavana is a Pali word that uh, is usually translated mental cultivation or mental development, sometimes translated meditation. 
Bhavana Mayapanya is the most powerful avenue to learning that we can engage in. Because when understanding comes out of meditation, it's coming into a different place and coming out of a different place. You all know that meditation brings about a powerful sense of presence right here and right now. The mind gets collected. And when the mind is collected, it becomes strong. It's the strength of that mind and the quietness that the collection brings that lets us see things in a new way. This is the ground of creativity. Whether you're an artist, a thinker, or a meditator, it's this collected presence in the moment that allows new understandings, new ideas to come. So this is one of the uh, great, great benefits of meditation. So insight comes, we see things in a new way, that changes us. Because the experience is coming into this collected presence, it goes much deeper. So the insights that come, the understandings that come out of learning through meditation more deeply transform us. In the uh, development of the understanding of emptiness, it's not a one-time insight or a one-time study. It's something that for most of us we want to keep learning about for the rest of our practice careers. And it's most helpful if we pursue all three forms of these avenues to learning. So today we'll be engaging in study, we'll be engaging in reflection, and we'll be engaging in meditation. And the, the way that all these fit together was stated very uh, succinctly by the Dalai Lama. He was quoting an old Tibetan master who said, when I meditate, I bring to bear my study and my critical reflection. When I study, I bring to bear my meditation and my critical reflection. And when I reflect, I bring to bear my study and my meditation. So we'll be developing all three of these avenues and I think they will all be very, very helpful in deepening the understanding of emptiness and what it has to offer. So I thought what we would do uh, to begin the exploration is to do a short meditation that will bring out some of the themes that we'll be developing over the day. So wherever you're sitting, you can do the meditation right on the spot. Please sit comfortably, rest comfortably, whatever suitable for you. And begin just by letting your attention, letting your awareness come into your body as you sit. Just simply feeling the body and sitting. If it's comfortable for you to close your eyes, that's our general practice in insight meditation. If not, it's fine to leave them open. And as you feel the body posture, let there be a sense of ease, of relaxation, of settling. Not trying to get anywhere else. We're just trying to feel what's here. At the same time, let the posture have a sense of uprightness. And the back's reasonably straight. 
and there's a sense of energy and alertness. And relax any obvious areas of holding through the body. Let the forehead be unwrinkled. Let the eyes be soft. The jaw can relax. The shoulders can be dropped. The belly is soft. And the hands aren't grasping. And as you bring your attention into the moment, take a look around and see what's here. What makes up your experience in this moment? We've already mentioned the body. So notice when your eyes are closed, the body is revealed by sensations throughout the range of the body. From the head, through the abdomen, arms and legs. Sensations are felt. And what else is here? You'll also notice there are sounds in the room. Some from inside, like my voice, the sound of each other, perhaps sounds of the building. And sounds from outside, could be traffic, could be a little breeze. There might be thoughts coming and going. Strings of words or images. And there could be a certain mood in the mind. There usually is something. Could be sleepiness could be interest, perhaps contentment or calm, could be worry or regret. And then there could be some form of seeing 
If your eyes are open, there will be. Even if your eyes are closed, there could be little dances of light as though on the eyelids. Maybe there's a little bit of smell, maybe there's a little bit of taste, or maybe not. Those senses aren't always so active. But in any case, we'll be experiencing sensations, sounds, thoughts, moods, sight, at least subtle. And notice how the attention will move around from one sense door to another. Sometimes with a sensation, next moment to a sound, the next noticing a thought. This is all natural, nothing you need to do to change it. Just noticing what's here, not trying to force it to be any particular way or change the way it is. Just settling in a relaxed way into the present and noticing what's here. And then noticing something that we may not normally tune into, which is a sense of space in our experience. For example, when a sound happens, it might create a sense of felt space that is the connection between us and the sound or the distance between us and the sound or an openness between us and the sound. The reach of the body creates a spatial dimension to our experience. body sensations feel like they're happening somewhere in space, in this felt sense of space. So just starting to notice that there is a felt sense of space that we can tune into in meditation.
And then we'll add in one more element that we don't always talk about in meditation instructions, and that is the element of awareness. Could also be called knowing. And if I were to ask you, are you aware right now? Hopefully that's a pretty easy answer to make. If you're not asleep, probably you feel aware. And then I could ask, what are you aware of? Right now, what are you aware of? You might see if the answer to that relates to one of the types of sense experience we've mentioned or the sense of space. You might be aware of a body sensation, of a sound, of a mood, or of space. And so now I'd like to give an instruction that puts all three of these kind of together. In every moment in which you're paying attention, or we could say in every moment in which you're being mindful, first notice what object is being singled out. Could be a sensation, a sound, thought, mood, sight. So you notice that sense experience. Then can you notice a feeling of space around it? So you, after noticing the sense experience, notice if it's happening within some sense of space, some space around it. Might be small space, might be big space, but there's some space around that experience. And as you practice with this, noticing the object and then moving to notice the space around it, see if that has any impact on how you're feeling. You could say on your mood or state of mind. You move from noticing an object to noticing space. Does that cause a shift in any way in your inner experience? 
in your meditation experience. And now we'll add in a little wrinkle on this instruction. Once you notice an object of the senses, sensation, sound, thought, mood, sight, can you tune into the awareness of it? Can you connect with your awareness And feel you're being aware of that thing. So moving from a sense object to noticing the awareness of it. Again, the awareness might be felt as small or it might be felt as large. Either way is fine. And then notice if this shift has any impact on your inner experience, on your meditative state. When you go from paying attention to an object to paying attention to awareness, do you feel any change in the inner experience in making that shift?
And now for the last minutes of the meditation, seeing if you can combine all three of these approaches. Every time you notice a sense object, notice the space that it's in. And then notice the awareness of it. And once you've taken time to feel into the awareness of it, then open again to the next sense object that presents itself. Sound, sensation, mood, thought. Notice the space around it. And then the awareness of it. These are elements that we'll return to again and again uh, over the day, both from a study point of view and from a meditation point of view, the elements of sense objects, space, and awareness. And these three together can provide some sense of the feeling of emptiness. So I'm curious, when people move from noticing sense objects to noticing space, do you feel any inner shift happen with that? How would, would you mind sharing? How, how would you describe that? A mic will come. Thank you. Um, it, all of a sudden, shifting to uh, space, um, it, it eliminates my involvement and and by default creates awareness. So I was going to ask you about this, the differences between space and awareness, because it, it seems as though one just automatically triggers the other. Nice. But, but it does separate the, um, my involvement in the process of the object. Yeah, so the comment was the movement from sense object into space diminished or eliminated his involvement with the object which gave more of a sense. What was, how was that experience inwardly? Can you describe that as a mind state, how that felt? Or body state? Diminishing that involvement? Um, probably more relaxed and um, really in the present moment, just being able to see, see, see an object, uh, in this case a thought, as, as being separate from me. The, th- the thoughts seem to be more 
to have stronger feeling tones associated with them, more so than, say, my body sensations at the time. So, so they, they were fairly neutral, but the thoughts required a little bit more attention. And once I engaged, I was wholeheartedly engaged. Um, as soon as I put some space around it or um, applied some awareness towards it, all of a sudden my involvement diminished and I saw it as, as something separate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Thank you. So the sense was that it um, provided a sense of relaxation by taking a step back from maybe the intensity of the involvement, especially with thoughts. And then there was also the question about the connection between space and awareness. The comment was that when he went to space, the awareness seemed to come along with it. So just in general, how many people had that sense that stepping to space decreased the involvement with the object? Yeah, good. Okay. This, is a, this itself is a good meditation pointer. When you find yourself caught up with one of the objects in your experience, see what happens when you shift into space instead. So this is a pointer to, you might say, the perspective of emptiness. The objects are be always being held within this bigger let's call it empty space. There's a connection between space and emptiness, which we'll draw out further. And then the other question, that going to space seemed to also lead to a connection to awareness. Did anybody else notice that? This is maybe... Yeah, there was some noticing of that too. That there seems to be a connection between the space and the awareness. Yes. There's a difference between perception and awareness. Like you can perceive something, but it's like the, it's you. Uh, but when you add the space, that allows awareness. Because awareness, it's not, it's not me, um, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, sort of the comment was that when... Um, we perceive something, we might take it immediately to be me. And when we turn to awareness, all of a sudden we know that's not me because there's awareness knowing it. Uh, I think that's a really great observation. And so the, the factor of awareness can play a similar role as the space plays in giving us... Uh, I don't want to say sense of distance because this stuff is still really immediate, but it does cut some kind of tendency to identify or become involved with or hold on. And that's really what we're interested in is loosening the clinging. So both space and awareness can act in a similar way. We're going to come back to the relationship between perception and awareness in a technical Buddhist sense a little later uh, in the morning. Silly. Um, so I, I had a slightly different experience I wanted to share. So... Um, what I focused on was a body sensation. I have chronic pain. And it was really fascinating because um, the first step going to space, um, I have been told, and I took a lot of pain coping classes and things, I've been told to use the word shape. What's the shape of that pain? And when I use the space, it's a magical word compared to shape. So what the space did was it actually gave me a place to hold my pain. 
and there was this sense of being held. Or I, was, I, was re- I was holding it, like in kind of mm-hmm. a kind way, or there mm-hmm. was this holding. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel a disconnection like other mm-hmm. people felt when I moved to, um, to space. Mm-hmm. Um, however, moving from space to a wellness, that was where the magic came from. Mm. It was, I felt deep inner peace and I think I understood what letting go meant mm. just in that moment. Mm. Um, because, because of my chronic pain, I've, I've been um, focusing on the first two and I never had that experience of that third level. Or I have it when I forget about my pain. But mm-hmm. to have that experience when the object is actually pain was just phenomenal. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So first of all, the space does bring in a way to hold an experience. And again, you know, the sense of um, distance or disconnection or detachment is one way of talking about it. But I more think what we want to cut is the identification and the clinging. You know, it's mine or I'm having it. And so cut, think of cutting the sense of I in relationship to it is part of what gives us more space to hold it. And I think that that's a, a beautiful outcome. And then the awareness, you said, opened up an even kind of bigger doorway to being with it. So I think that's beautiful. So... Again, I just encourage everyone to play with these two doorways, space and awareness, and see which one is really effective in holding any sense of struggle, identification, physical pain, mental conflict. Very good, thank you. I think there was a question right behind Steve. Yeah, I had a little bit of a... I I shared some of the reactions that, that... folks have spoken about, but I felt like I was struggling with this exercise a little bit, so I just wanted to share that and ask a question. When you said focus on a sense object, had no problem with that for me. Okay, I was working on the breath. And then you said, well, the space around that, I just found myself like, what does that even mean? So I'm, and then, then when I shifted to a sound, like a, like a car wishing by, like, what does it mean, the space around that? I found myself, it's kind of in an abstract world. I didn't quite know what you meant by that. And then when you said shift to awareness. Oh my gosh, that's even, what does that even mean? So I found myself kind of in the bonehead school of meditation here, so (laughs) forgive me. Um, I'm at level one, you know, like I got the sense thing going. But, um, and at the same time, I felt glimmers of, yeah, it was freeing just even to play with it. But I'm just, I guess I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about um, the space around stuff. What is that? Could you just elaborate on that a little bit and, and how... I guess I just don't quite know what that means. So yeah, no, this, it, it's a very good question. I'm glad you've probably expressed it for a number of people who are, who are here right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that you, you brought this in. Space is not something that we're accustomed to tuning into. So as a meditation focus, let's call it, I don't want to call it an object, but let's call it a focus in meditation. It takes some getting used to. So let me ask this. I, I'll pose it two ways. Do you, can you get a sense of a space right now that's between you and me? You're sitting over there, I'm sitting here. Yeah. Okay, so when eyes are open, the sense of space is kind of easy to feel. Could you focus on that space? Let's say right now maybe you're focusing on me mm-hmm. and the movement of my lips or my facial expression. What if you focus on the space between us mm-hmm. as we're talking? 
Does that have any impact on the feeling of our conversation? Uh, I could definitely understand what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So w- one way to play with space is whenever you're talking to somebody, don't focus on the fir- person. Focus on the space between you. Or a little bigger, you could focus on the space that encompasses you both. You know, the space of the room holds both of us. And see what that does to the quality of the conversation. You know, that, that's one way to play with it. Here's a way I'd also play with space around the breath. So the breath is felt in the body. Um, wh- where were you feeling it? Belly or nose or whole breath? or um, Different places, but mostly the belly for me. Okay. Let's say it's being felt in the belly. The body already gives a sense of space because it extends from here to here. So in feeling the breath in the belly, I would just say expand the, um, the, the visual focus, kind of the focus of the meditation, to encompass the bigger area of the body that it's happening in. And that would be an immediate way into the sense of space around the sensations in the belly. Or similarly, if you're focusing on the breath here, just focus on the area around the nose that is felt as a part of the body and is still in space. And let that kind of hold, you know, as Sylvie said, let it hold the sensations that are happening there. And just play with it. It is something we need to explore and get more comfortable with. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for the comments. I just want to take those all in and move on a little bit. We'll keep coming back. I know there there are more questions, and I'm just going to ask that hold them for now, and they may come back in later. I want to move on to a little more, a little more content. So these elements of sense object, space, and awareness will come back to again and again, and they do uh, each provide a window into emptiness, and particularly space and awareness provide a doorway into the experience of emptiness. So we want to start going through these four uh, elements of emptiness that I mentioned in the introduction, which are self, phenomena, awareness, a meditation, and compassion as the fifth. So we'll start with the emptiness of self. This was the way that uh, the Buddha often addressed emptiness in the early discourses, so that's the first one that we'll look at. Um, in most cases, if you don't have a copy of the handout, don't worry because the, the quotes are fairly short and you can pick one up at lunchtime. Steve will make, make more copies at lunch and you can catch up. Maybe you can share with looking on at someone for now. But I want to start with a section called The Emptiness of Self and quotation number two. And what I'd like to do if we could, wherever the microphone is, if uh, that person could read... Uh, quotation number two, so I'm not reading all the quotes. We'll kind of move it around, and we could start on with the last questioner. Yeah. Okay. All yogas have one aim. Okay. All yogas have only one aim, to save you from the calamity of separate existence. This is a quotation from an Indian teacher named Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, and this is meant to be a little bit of a provocative statement. Did you realize that you were in a calamity? (laughs) But being separated out, yeah. 
being separated out into existence is kind of a calamity (laughs) because that's what exposes us to feelings of separation, of isolation, of not belonging, and eventually of death. Our life is rooted in separation. And this feeling of separation provides a lot of suffering. So looked at from the point of view of wisdom, this sense of being separate is not a happy outcome. The sense of separation is expressed in the way we tend to use the words over and over and over again, I, me, my, and mine. When you, when you sit down to meditate and you're intending to focus on, let's say, the body or the breath, are you able to be with that most of the time? You have like 90% mindfulness of body or chosen up? No, not usually. What's usually happening that takes you away from that? Thoughts. What do the thoughts tend to revolve around? They revolve around self mostly, don't they? Are you busy solving the global economic crisis? Are you busy ending the civil war in Syria? Probably not. Most of our thoughts, the compulsive, obsessive thoughts, run around I, me, my. So this habit of self is very deeply conditioned and the Buddha said that it's the overemphasis on it that is responsible for our suffering. So this is something we really want to understand. How does the self manifest? How reliable is it? To what extent is it a fiction or a construct? This is the first way we want to investigate the sense of emptiness. So let's jump a little bit ahead to um, number four, quotation number four. And uh, if the microphone could go to the left and you could read number four, please. Ananda, Venerable Sir, it is said, empty is the word, empty is the word. In what way is it said empty is the word? The Buddha. It is Ananda because it is empty of self and of what belongs to self that is but it is said, empty is the world. Mm, thank you. So the Buddha says the world is empty of self. Does your world feel that way? <laughs> Not usually. So how would it feel if our understanding aligned with the Buddha's? How would it feel to understand the world as truly empty of self? Does the world feel empty of your possessions? Does it feel empty of your car, your clothes, your partner, your home, your apartment, your furniture, your television? Often our world feels very full of those things. How would it feel if the world was empty of what belonged to a self? It might feel different. That might be freeing. So what we want to do in this first part of the day is look into this idea of self and we'll see it arises with I, me, my thoughts often a lot sometimes it feels like all the time arises with those thoughts the philosopher William James said when I search for myself all I find is a funny feeling at the back of my throat (laughs) it's kind of like that if we look for the self it's very hard to locate so let's look at some of the ways we commonly use the words I and my so let me ask you a simple question it's not a trick how old are you That's pretty easy, right? Okay. And, you know, I might say I'm 39, even though I'm not. (laughs) Now, when I say I am 39, what's 39? 
Are your moods 39 years old? Are your thoughts 39 years old? No. You just had those this morning, probably. What's 39? It's the body, right? This body came out of the womb 39 years ago. And here, the eyes being equated with the body. We're basically saying, I am the body, and the body is 39 years old. So here, the eye is the body. Okay, now let me ask you, what color are your eyes? Again, this is easy. I say my eyes are brown or blue or whatever. So now, I'm not the body. I'm the owner of the eyes. I'm not saying I'm blue. I'm saying my eyes are blue. So the eye is something separate that owns the body and has eyes. So which are you really? Are you the body or are you the owner of it? And can you be both? How many selves are you? In a a given moment, how many selves are you? So here's another way. So we could be the body, we could be the owner of the body. You might ask me, oh, how are you today? I'd say I'm happy or I'm sad. So now it's not the body or the owner of the body. It's I'm the emotion. I'm happiness. I'm sadness. So now I is the emotion. But other times we could talk about my joys and my sorrows. So now I'm the owner of the emotions. So here are four ways. I'm the body. I'm the owner of the body. I'm the emotion. I'm the owner of the emotion. Which are you really? Here's a fifth way. The way people often most deeply feel themselves to be is an observer who's located between the ears and behind the eyes. But somewhere in the center of the head, there's this little being who's kind of looking out, seeing everything that happens, hearing all the sounds, experiencing the world, but separate from it. So that's a fifth way we often create the sense of I as an observer. So now we have five ways. And in each of these, what we're doing is a process called identification. Identification means we take a fragment of our experience and we pin the title I to it. We describe the I or we claim something as being I or mine that's just a fragment of our experience. The body, the owner of the body, the emotions, the owner of the emotions, or this observer. And there's a sixth way that we commonly think of I, and this may be the most universal. We're all of the above. We're this whole, I am actually this whole packet. I'm the body and I'm the owner of it. I'm the emotions and I'm the owner of them. And I'm the observer in here. I'm all of that wrapped together in one package. So you look at that and you say, okay, so you're your toenail and you're your compassion and you are your liver, and you are your anger? Is that the same self? How many selves are you? You know, generally people who feel that they're more than one person, their friends offer to medicate them fairly, fairly quickly. So generally we feel we're one, one being. But here we're saying, oh, I'm all these different things put together. That's who I really am. The Buddha had a, had a good rejoinder to all of this, and this is quotation three. So, next, if you could pass the mic to the left. Uh, 
in whatever way they conceive of self, the first... The fact. I'm sorry. I need my glasses. The fact is ever other than that. Yeah, thank you. In whatever way they conceive of self, the fact is ever other than that. One of my teachers put it a little more bluntly. He said, everything you think is wrong. Reminds me of a comment on talk radio. I don't listen to a lot of talk radio for the obvious reasons, but this is a great comment. He, some show host said, the mind, often wrong, seldom in doubt. <laughs> so, so along those lines. So the way we think of ourselves has been conditioned by our use of this language ever since we were old enough to hear. Our parents started using the words in this way. We picked them up and started using them in this way. And they've constructed for us this illusory sense of what a self is. So it's illusory because the way we use the word I doesn't point to a simple entity that actually exists. You know, if you want to talk about I as this whole collection of stuff, that's okay. But that's like saying that a car is an actual thing. A car is not an actual thing in itself. It's just a collection of parts that have been put together. You take a car apart and you put it out on the ground. Is that still a car? No. It's only a car when you assemble the parts in a certain way and you get them to work together in that way. So we've called ourselves this whole thing of I. It's just a collection of parts. There's not one thing in the center anywhere that is the essence or the owner of this collection of parts. But we have used the word over and over and over again in a way that makes us think that there is. So the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said, the self is just a shadow cast by grammar. That's all it is. There's nothing really there. Now, it's fine to talk about this collection of parts in ways that make clear it's identifiable. It hangs together as a collection of parts for a limited period of time. It's going to fall apart at some time in the future, but it's hanging together as a collection of parts. And as a social convention, it's very useful. When we walk out of here today, we want to be sure that I go to my car and you go to your car. And then when we drive off, you get to your home and I get to my home. If we didn't have those conventions, things would be crazy. Society would be in chaos So these are very useful conventions on a social level. It's to designate where an activity is taking place, right? Like if I just said angry, would you know where that was happening? No. So, you know, we have to say I am angry or she is angry or he is angry to designate where it's taking place. This is when we're talking to one another. But when you're talking about your own experience, you don't need the word I or my For example, you're sitting in meditation, there starts to be a pain here, and the thought comes, oh, my knee is killing me. Well, that's one thing you could say. That tends to dramatize the situation. What if you said, pain is arising? That makes it a little less personal. There's not the grabbing, there's not the identification. I'm feeling terrified. Or you could say, terror is arising. I urge you to play with this in meditation, to take some of the I and my out of the way you describe your own experience to yourself. 
I and my, he and she, we and they, they're useful when we talk to each other. They're not so useful when we talk to ourselves. So we will look at um, the solution to this when we come back. So we're about an hour and a quarter in. Feels like it might be time for a break. So why don't you take about a 10-minute break and we'll ring a bell uh, to come back together. The reason this sense of self is uh, really important to look at is that it's not just a kind of neutral feeling experience. We have a lot of emotions connected around the sense of I. So our hopes, our fears, our wants, our needs, our desires, our resentments, our regrets, our sadness, they're all lumped around this concept of I. So in seeking to become free from all these sources of unhappiness, we can look at what the linchpin is, the center that's holding it together. One of the things we see if we examine this sense of I closely is that there are actually four assumptions embedded in the belief in I that we've made unconsciously and we've never looked at. And these assumptions cause uh, problems. So the first assumption is of continuity. Once we have constructed a sense of I, we believe that it's continuing. We believe it's ongoing. And as an easy way to see that, if you didn't have a sense of the continuity of I, would there be any reason to be worried about death? That would be somebody else's problem, wouldn't it? (laughs) But we don't feel that way. It feels like my problem. The I is going to come to an end at some point, and that's threatening. So as soon as we construct the sense of I and believe in it and invest it with continuity, we become frightened, we become anxious in an existential kind of way. Another assumption within the I is that it's independent. And you especially can feel this with the sense of observer, this little being located in the head. It's as though it's looking out, seeing things, feeling things, hearing things, but it's not affected by them. And we sometimes have the sense that this observer has been the same since we were a small child up until today and that this observer is going to continue until we die. Once we have that sense of independence, then 
it runs into a problem because things feel threatening to it. The emotions feel threatening. Fear feels threatening. Anger feels threatening. And we try to create a distance between the I, which is trying to create a safe little island, and the emotion or the experiences that come to it. Then this sense of independence leads to the third assumption, which is an assumption of control. Once we have the establishment of a center, then we think we ought to be able to use that center to control our experience. We ought to be able to keep the unpleasant away and bring the pleasant in. That's the basic project of the independent I, is to control experience. We should control our body, we should control our emotions, but we can't. There is no actual control. The mind-body process sometimes is called ungovernable. It's happening according to its own laws. There is no one at the center who can control it. And yet, that's frustrating. We assume we ought to be able to, to some degree, control this mind-body process. But we can't, because there isn't a center eye there. You know what happens to a two-year-old who tries to control and can't? (laughs) That's where tantrums come from, right? That's what happens to grown-ups, too, when they try to control, when we try to control, and we can't. We go into a tantrum. And then there's one other little piece about uh, this self. We think that it's uh, one thing and that it's unique, right? We think that I am unique from every other human being, unique in the cosmos, maybe, and that there's just one thing that is the I, if only we could find it. So there's this assumption of singleness. But that's where you start looking at, is it the toenail? Is it the liver? Is it the compassion? Is it the anger? There's not just one thing here. There are lots of things. And while the whole package is unique, as far as I know, there's not one entity in here that is. We'll come back to this in more detail. The whole package is unique, and that's why we can describe the package in terms like, I'm young or I'm old. You know, I'm tall or I'm short. You know, I'm Anglo-Saxon or I'm African-American. We can talk about ethnicity as an attribute of the whole package. But there is not one entity within that holds all those attributes. So this whole package we describe as the human being, we talk about this as the conventional self. So the conventional self is a thing that is in the world, It has what we could call properties or qualities that can be held as a relative identity. But we shouldn't take any of those identities as the absolute summation of who we are. Because really the package is many things and it's always changing. So conventionally we can talk about a being and describe qualities. But on a a more fundamental level we can't find such an entity within this changing package especially one that satisfies the assumptions of continuity, independence, control, and singleness. Okay, so the Buddha said that constructing these ideas of self is always going to be misleading. So, what's real? Where should we look to find reality if not in the self? And to answer that, let's take a look at quotation five. The microphone could go left one more time. 
Listen, monks, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of things. What is the totality? It is simply the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. If anyone were to proclaim a totality beyond this, that person would be speaking of something outside their knowledge. Mm, Thank you. I think this is a really beautiful statement, and it underpins the whole of Buddhist philosophy and psychology and meditation. This is a very central statement to understand what the Buddha was pointing to. I think it's a radical statement. In the whole history of philosophy, I don't know of another statement that is as succinct and as meaningful as this one. So, what I find kind of revolutionary about this statement is this is describing the human experience. And the Buddha is saying that what we are going to base our understanding on is the human experience. So we have, you know, we've had brilliant minds in the West in the last hundred years or so. We had Karl Marx, we have, we've had Sigmund Freud, you know, we've had Albert Einstein. None of them said they were going to teach us a totality of things. This is a very bold statement for 2,500 years ago. But none of them were pointing to this totality. You know, Marx was pointing to socioeconomic issues, and Freud was just pointing to a little bit of psychology, and Einstein was pointing to the way matter works. What the Buddha is pointing to is the whole of our human experience. The eye and sights, the ear and sounds, nose and smells, tongue and taste, body and sensations, mind and mind objects. So first of all, check within your own experience. Is there anything in your experience that's outside this description? Yeah. Listen, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of things. It is simply the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. Is there anything in your experience that is outside that list? Mind objects. Um, Objects of mind are basically thoughts and emotions. But we, could all, we will also include in there, we'll look at this a little more closely later, meditative states like mindfulness, tranquility, concentration. But basically, think of it as thoughts and emotions. Yes, if we could get a microphone. Is imagination then considered a thought and nothing more? Yes, imagination would be in the realm of mind object, thought. Mm-hmm. Yes, at the back. Awareness. Awareness. So I would put that under mind. I would say that mind is the knowing quality. Cognizing. No? Where would you put 
Where would you put consciousness, I'm if not in mind? Not consciousness, but awareness. Uh, I use the two synonymously, so what do you mean by awareness? Uh, well, I think of consciousness as um, something you can talk about. Mm-hmm. Awareness is not. Awareness is not something we can talk about? Yeah. I mean, not, not I, can na- I can't name it, describe it, pin it down. Okay, so the way I use awareness is synonymous with consciousness. Okay. The way other teachers use awareness is synonymous with mindfulness. So are you thinking of awareness as mindfulness, like the understanding of what we're experiencing? Well, when you say understanding, then you go to your mind, right? Mm-hmm. And... Awareness as I experience it is not in the mind. It's beyond mind. It's like you have a camera and you open the lens and it starts out with a pinpoint and it and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And when there's no limit to that, that's awareness. Is it qualitative different, qualitatively different from consciousness? D- does awareness know things? Mm. <laughs> I think awareness is not interested in knowing things. Okay. Um, this would be a lo- this would be a longer discussion. I can see that. Yes, uh, thank you. <laughs> so let let's hold this uh, on pause, okay. and we'll come, we'll come back to it later. The, yeah, the way the way I use awareness in the kind of broadest sense is that which knows, and I connect it with knowing objects as well as knowing space. Some schools of Buddhism consider that there's a transcendent dimension behind awareness. And so that's what you're pointing to? Yes. And so what I would say is the Buddha talked about one transcendent element, which he called Nibbana. And the different schools have debated whether Nibbana has cognizance or not. Some schools say it doesn't. Other schools say it does. So that lines up with the way you're using awareness. So in that sense, if we call it the transcendent that has some property of cognizance, then what I would say is that this that's of another dimension than sense objects existing or not existing. And what the Buddha is pointing to is things that are existent within our experience something that transcends that is outside this list. And so in that way, we may be talking about the same thing. So let's say for now that Nibbana is a something, although we don't quite know what it is or how to describe it, in being transcendent is not included within this list of things that exist. So it's, you can, might say Nibbana is beyond existence and non-existence. And what the Buddha is pointing to here is things that exist. Can we go with that? Okay, a little bit of hand waving. Slight of hand.
Yes. I have um, a comment and a question mm -hmm. on the latest question you ask about whether it's true that all we experience, etc. But before that, I had a quick question regarding an earlier statement you made that based on the four assumptions uh, that we all make, generally people make, about uh, um, self. And the second one was independence. Mm -hmm. It's independence. Independence from what? From the objects of the senses. You could say the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, and emotions. Huh. I think the thought, but the thought is separate from me. I see the sight, but the seeing is separate from me. Oh, so it's the distinction subject and object, in mm -hmm. other words? Essentially. Okay. Um, you, so with this statement of all that we know, mm. right, um, is the Buddha fundamentally saying that um, all we can know is the field of our experience? I don't think he wants to say that as a philosophical statement, uh. but I think he wants to say this is the totality that it is skillful to investigate. Okay, that's the meaning or the context or the direction of this statement. Okay, all right, thank it's you. It's the totality of what exists within human experience. It's all that we can possibly know and investigate, so to speak. Yes. Okay, and anything outside that would be a, I'd say a guess. Irrelevant for the purposes irrelevant. Of, of liberation. Okay. Okay. It's, it's you know it's not saying that you know people in uh, China don't exist. No, of course. But they're not part of our experience right now. Yeah. And so this is where where we want to focus. Yeah, it's the field of uh, engagement, so to speak. Yeah. Yes. You got a mic. Okay. You're on. It works. Oh, cool. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this, and I guess I'll try to link it with because uh, that meditation you had done before about sense object and space and awareness. Yes, it feels connected in some way because so I had an agitating thing that I was dealing with, an interaction, um, and then very dramatic positive shift as soon as I make space around it. It's just this quick reduction in angst around it, mm -hmm. and then when the awareness comes. It's almost like this sequela that leads to a conundrum, and it makes me think of this quote, because the awareness comes, and initially there's a sense of observing I, mm -hmm. and then the observing I feels empowered because there's spaciousness to resolve it, so I can either pummel that person or resolve it compassionately, and the observer I have. Then I'm noticing it more and more. I was like, oh, actually, no, that's ego. That's me. That's I. That's not where I'm actually trying to go. And then deeper practice dissolving into non-duality or nothingness or transcendence, I don't know what that word would be. Mm -hmm. So you kind of evaporate into something more. Then you kind of cease to exist in the way that you were a moment ago. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, so you oscillate between ego and nothingness. When that happens, mm -hmm. there's this sense that it's beyond this totality because you dissolve into something more. So this constant oscillation. So I'm curious with this oscillation state, is there a moment when you dissolve into something more where you go beyond this totality? So thank you for that description. I think that's a, a really clear description of you know, the way we get caught and the way we get out. And I would encourage you to investigate what is present 
when the, let's call it the conflict or the knot, dissolves? For instance, is awareness still present? Well, oscillatingly so, meaning mm-hmm. it keeps coming in and out, and then, well, do I want it there as, as, as a sense of me or as a sense of ego? If I'm trying to dissolve into something that is more than I, then, then I suppose it stops existing in that way. Or maybe it's just a conduit for everything. So the, the way I experience it, and you can compare it and see if this is kind of the way you experience it, is when we get really involved with some memory, let's say, and there's clinging, then we put space around it or some awareness of it, it dissolves, and nothing right away has to fill that space. You know, it kind of creates an empty, an emptiness in which there's still some kind of awareness. You know, we can tune in, oh, that has dissolved. And we can even tune into the sense, oh, this feels calm now. Then if there's a, a struggle again and the re- reforming of that sense of self and the conflict with it, we can see that forming, but we can also let it go again. In my experience, the, the thing that's left when that not dissolves is empty awareness. And so I would put that, first of all, I'd put the awareness in the category of mind. That I think that's basically what the Buddha is pointing to here, is that mind as the knowing faculty. So that mind is still there, but it's felt very differently because there's not a constriction at the center. So we're going to get into some meditations later in the day that will directly kind of steer us to that what I'd call empty awareness and that's a great place to hang out in and from that empty awareness you can watch the self reform and feel the suffering of it and then you can watch it dissolve but the empty awareness is there through that experience yeah thank you thank you so um, this this provides for us this focus on the sense organs and the sense objects provides a focus for our meditation. Does it remind you of the first meditation we did this morning with the what's here? Right, and what we found was here was sensations and sounds and thoughts, mood, some eyesight. Tastes and smells, not much here now. So basically, this provides a map for meditation practice in the style that we normally teach it. We teach in the lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw, and what he pointed to was just keep knowing the sense experiences, being mindful, sight, sound, smell, taste, sensations, thoughts, and feelings. So this provides a map for that. It also, the reason that's so helpful, it provides a map for how we suffer and how we become free. We develop craving and clinging around sense objects, and we become free by letting go. This is moving from the second noble truth of craving into the third noble truth of letting go. All in relation to objects of the senses. Objects of the senses are the only things that can cause us pain. And letting go of the constriction is what opens up freedom for us. Good. Now, let's look at... um, so this is one way of describing our, the totality of our experience through the six sense bases and their objects. There's another way, which the Buddha used just about as often, which is in quote six. So could the mic 
Yes, you, you still have the mic, if you could read quote six. The five aggregates are material form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. Yeah, thanks. So, as a reference, this is just a short list of the five aggregates. We'll talk about what they are in a little, a little more detail. But if you want to read one sutta on the five aggregates, this one that's cited here is a very good one, Majjhima Nikaya 109. Um, good one to study, good one to read. Oh, and I didn't mention, when I put in parentheses E32, this is the reference to the page number in my book, Emptiness, where this list is embedded or where a quote is embedded. Because sometimes people want a further reference or they want the context that the quote is from. So if you want more on that, it's in the book on page 32. Yeah, the book. So this is the empty cover <laughs> of the empty book. And uh, Nisar is an empty self is going to be selling them over lunch. So we have a bunch out in the lobby. If you want, he'll be available. And I'm happy to sign them either over lunch or at the end of the day if you'd like it signed. So these are the five aggregates. This is a list the Buddha used, I'd say, about as much as the list of the six senses. But he used them in different ways. He used the six senses more to cut through craving, second noble truth territory, because we go for pleasurable experiences in the six senses. He used the five aggregates to cut through wrong view. Wrong view primarily, in this case, being constructing the sense of self and believing in it. So we're going to focus a little more on the five aggregates for a little bit. And uh, I'll explain them first. Material form, is the Pali word is rupa. It's often used to refer to the body. So first meaning of material form is this body. But it also means the physical senses connected with this body. Not only the organs, but sound is considered within material form, Right? One piece of material form hits another piece of material form. It creates this physical ripple called a sound wave that is also within the realm of matter by the Buddha's definition. So matter includes the whole physical world. It includes this body and it includes sight, sound, smells, tastes, and sensations. So everything that comes out of the physical is in this aggregate of material form. So now we've dealt with the whole physical world. What are the other four aggregates? They're mental. So the first one here is just feeling. It's often translated as feeling tone, and it's from the Pali term Vedana. Feeling tone is a very important concept in the Buddhist teachings. It's a second aggregate. It's also the second foundation of mindfulness. Why is feeling tone so important? Why is the Buddha highlighting it? Yes, is there a mic? It's, it's going, yeah. I don't think it's on yet. Now it's on. Just takes a minute to warm up. 
screen. Hello? Is that better? Okay. Is this better? Why don't you say, and I'll... I'm I'll happy to project. Yeah, you yes. project. The feeling tone being pleasant and unpleasant. Is it working now? Yes, feeling tone, pleasant, being unpleasant. Being unpleasant and neutral... Um, is then the source of greed, hatred, or aversion, and delusion. Perfect. Yeah, feeling tone comes in... I don't get called that very often, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Pleasant. (laughs) Very good. Feeling tone comes in three flavors, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, sometimes called neutral, and they condition the arising of greed or aversion. So when the feeling tone is pleasant, how do we tend to relate to something? I want. When the feeling tone is unpleasant, how do we tend to relate? I don't want. So when it's neutral, how do we tend to relate? I ignore. That's delusion. It's part of our experience, but we're cut off. We don't see it. So these are the bases for the reactive formations of greed, aversion, and delusion sometimes called the chilases, sometimes called the defilement, sometimes called the poisons. So feeling tone is so fundamental to our experience because it conditions reactive formations. Does a pleasant feeling tone always condition, does it always result in greed? When does it not? When it's seen. When it's seen. If there's mindfulness and feeling tone is seen clearly, then the reactive formation may not happen. So that's the beauty of mindfulness of feeling tone. It can interrupt the reactive formations of greed, aversion, and delusion. Now, perception is a really interesting one. We don't talk about it a lot, but it's, it's very key. Perception in Western psychology, I think, means something like um, the bare sense data. Like when a sound happens... In Western psychology, I think that's called a perception. In Buddhism, that bare sense data is called something different. That's called contact. Contact. But the perception is we take a moment of contact and we put it into a category. So we, you hear this and you recognize meditation bell. You see somebody walk in the door and you recognize Chris. You go outside and you see something on the street and you recognize car. It is labeling. You may not verbally produce the label, but you're making that association. So just as you look around the room, what do you tend to see? We tend to see objects that we place in categories. We tend to see people and cushions and chairs and pillars and vents and carpet and walls and window. We're not naming those things every time but we're perceiving the, the world that way. It may seem like that's just a given. The, the world of perception and putting things in categories is just a given. In fact, it's something we've learned to do. So perception is rooted in memory. There's a prior category that's been established. 
we see something in the new moment, we drop it into that category. Not everyone may have this ability. And this is uh, attested by a story from Oliver Sacks, the neurologist, who was working with a man who was blind. And he had lost his sight as a very, very young boy, probably sometime around infancy. As a result of losing his sight, he had uh, grown up blind. He lost it so early. Then in his middle years, they found an operation that could restore his sight. The man's name was Virgil, and he went through this operation. As he came through it, and the operation seemed to go well, a number of people were gathered around his hospital bed, and the bandages were still on Virgil's eyes. So Sachs was there, and the surgeon was there, and Virgil's wife, I think, was there. And they took the bandages off. And everybody thought Virgil was going to go, wow, now I can see. It didn't happen like that. Virgil seemed to be staring blankly, bewildered, without focusing at the surgeon who stood before him. Only when the surgeon spoke, saying, well, did a look of recognition cross Virgil's face. Virgil told me later that in this first moment he had no idea what he was seeing. There was light Movement, color, all mixed up, meaningless, a blur. Then out of the blue came a voice that said, Well, then and only then, he said, did he finally realize that this chaos of light and shadow was a face, and indeed the face of his surgeon. So his brain had grown up while he was blind, and it hadn't created the perceptual links to let him recognize what he was seeing. All he saw is basically what we see, really, before we interpret patches of form and color. You can get a sense of this if you cover one eye. Then the world goes two-dimensional, and all you really see are patches of form and color. We've learned to interpret them. Virgil hadn't. Painters need to see this way. If you want to put colors on canvas, you need to see what two dimensions looks like before you can represent it accurately. Virgil had not learned to put the names to those patches of form and color. We do, and we do it so automatically, we don't even think about it. But this is the faculty of perception, and it's happening all the time. If we perceive people in a certain way, that forms an image that tends to stay in the mind. We see somebody being angry, and we have a perception, oh, that's an angry person. And then we tend to solidify that as an image We plant it in our mind, it becomes a view, and then we relate to them out of that view. So perception conditions our relations to the world. So perception is a very powerful uh, faculty. And one of the things the Buddha said is the perception of impermanence is what frees us. So seeing impermanence leads to freedom of heart and mind. Material formations, here translated volitional formations, sometimes translated just formations, these are all translations of the Pali term sankara. This is the fourth aggregate. It's a mental aggregate. And this means basically, I'll say most roughly, thoughts and emotions. These are the constructions of mind. Um, 
but it also includes uh, volitional formations related to um, speech and bodily actions. So when we speak, that is a volitional formation. When we act, give somebody a gift, that's a bodily formation. A thought is a volitional formation of the mind, a mental formation. It also includes, so it includes the range of emotions, happiness, sadness, desire, fear, joy, elation, includes all those, but it also includes subtle meditative states. So as we develop meditation, qualities like mindfulness, um, interest, rapture, tranquility, concentration, wisdom, equanimity, those are also in the fourth aggregate of volitional formations. Is there a mic working? Do we have an operational? Okay, I can repeat. Oh, Chris is coming with a mic. No, it's not. It's not working. It's not. Okay. Okay. I'll re- I'll repeat it. I'll repeat it. Are the, is the perception of space and the perception of emptiness also a formation? I would say it's a perception. There's no, if there's a formation element in it, you're not in pure perception. In this, li- in this particular list, the Buddha kind of singled perception out as its own aggregate. So when we're talking about the five, we tend to single it out from volitional formations. But... In a simpler form, we could toss feeling and perception into the aggregate of sankharas. And then we just have three aggregates. This is actually quite a simple model and useful model if you want to look at your own experience through this lens. It's very helpful. Sometimes just think about three aggregates and consider that perception could be considered a volitional formation. And feeling tone could be considered a volitional formation. Then we're just dealing with a simpler list. Body, if you want to look at your experience. Body, mind stuff, meaning mind states, and consciousness. That's a simple way to look at a being. So then you can toss perception in that way and think of it as a volitional formation. Now, why the word volitional? This is... Interesting. It's just a translation. The Pali word sankharas really just means formations. But volitional adds a useful flavor. So let's take emotions, first of all. You know, volition is the element of will. You could call it urge, uh, impulse, motivation, motive force, power, intention. All these say that it's uh, a movement that's coming out of some inner willing action. Now, another question is, is this will free? Is it a sense, is there a source of self in will or is it not? So we'll pick that up a little later, but for right now, let's look at this quality of volitional. So let's take a simple emotion. Let's take an emotion like desire. Is there a volitional component to desire? Is desire expressing some will or motivation? Think, think about a situation where you've wanted something. Is there a will in that? Yeah. How would you describe, what would you say the will is or the motive or the volition? What does desire want to do? 
Hmm? It wants to go out and get something, doesn't it? It wants to possess or own or have. So that's the volition in desire, wanting to acquire or get to. What about anger? Is there a volition in that? How would get get rid? Push away. Yeah. Anger has this kind of volition behind it. Push it away. Get it away from me. What about um, loving kindness? Is it expressing a volition? How would you describe that? Hmm? Acceptance. Acceptance. You say, you know, helping or caring, supporting, generating goodwill. Goodwill is basically the wish for the other to be well. So there's the volition for someone to be well. Compassion, volition to relieve suffering. So most emotions have a volitional component and that's why this translation is helpful. These are volitional formations for a large part. Now, a, um, a refined meditative state like mindfulness may not be expressing a volition, but it only comes out of a volition. In other words, we have to choose to be mindful most of the time, right? Sometimes it may come by habit, unprompted, but mostly when you sit down to meditate, you have to decide, I want to pay attention. So mindfulness comes out of volition. Similarly, all the refined meditative states that follow, you, know, you look at the seven factors of enlightenment, you look at the, um, the list of the five spiritual faculties, these are deliberately cultivated out of development in meditation. So they are the result of volition, and they're, therefore they're also volitional formations. They're formations we have wanted to develop. Okay, so this is the fourth aggregate, volitional formations. The fifth aggregate, consciousness, we've referred to a few times today. In the Western language, consciousness can be something really broad. You know, in the, in the 1970s, I went to consciousness-raising sessions as part of the feminist movement, which I thought were great, you know, great innovations. Um, but Buddhist consciousness is much simpler than that. It's simply the knowing of sense objects the barest kind of cognition of a sense object. So, when there's a sound, just your knowing of that mm, comes about because you're conscious. If you were asleep, you probably wouldn't hear. That was a fairly faint sound. You wouldn't hear it. Because you're awake, you're conscious, you hear. That's what it means to be a sentient being. We're having sense experiences. So consciousness, the fifth aggregate, is the faculty that just reveals, you could say, or knows or holds the bare sense data of the six senses. That's all it is. So uh, the world of the sense data is getting revealed to us because we're conscious. Does a dog have consciousness in this sense? Yeah, a dog has sense data, doesn't it? It sees, it smells, it hears, has sensations in the body. A dog has consciousness, sense consciousness. Fish? Yeah. Every sentient being has sense consciousness. Does a dog have mindfulness? I wonder. 
You know, when you open a can of food for your dog at dinner, does the dog sit there and go, hearing? (laughs) Perception of can. (laughs) Smelling. Smelling. Perception of Frisky's chicken. (laughs) Desire arising. Intention arising. Walk to bowl. Shall I walk to bowl? Does it happen like that for your dog? Hasn't happened like that for my dogs. Dog hears the can, boom, they're gone. So I would say, sorry? We have a mic? We have mics back. <laughs> Let me give a quick definition of mindfulness so we're on the same page. You know, you can read many, many definitions of mindfulness. Some of them get really long. Um, The secular mindfulness has its own definition. The Buddha didn't ever define it. So if you ask Gil about it, Gil's got a whole theory that he'll, he's probably shown here on what constitutes sati. I'm going to say really simply, mindfulness is understanding what your experience is in the present moment. And in the Buddhist sense, that understanding should be within the four foundations. The reason I say this is, if you read the Satipatthana Sutta, and you read through the four foundations, this is the main discourse on mindfulness. You get into the section on the body. The Buddha will say something like, breathing in long, one understands I breathe in long. Breathing in short, one understands I breathe in short. Or second foundation. Feeling a pleasant feeling, one understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. Feeling an unpleasant feeling, one understands, I feel an unpleasant feeling. Or you get into the third foundation. When the mind is affected by lust, one understands, the mind is affected by lust. When the mind is affected by hate, one understands, the mind is affected by hate. Or the fourth foundation. When experiencing the hindrance of sense desire, one understands, this is the experience of sense desire. You notice the common thread in all those is this word understands. The Pali word is, sam, is uh, pajanati. It's related to the term sampajanya, which means clear comprehension. And I think it is the direct practical pointing of how mindfulness is turned on. So if you want to turn on mindfulness, you understand what's happening in the present moment. So there's a very succinct definition. That's how to develop mindfulness. Understanding your experience in the present moment. So does a dog ever sit back and go, let me understand my experience in the present moment? I haven't seen it. Okay. Yes. Mike's back. So before you started to talk about those five aggregates, you said that they um, allow us to cut through wrong views. Is it what you are going to explain now? Yes, exactly. Yes, if you pass it back. Sorry, thank you. Can you talk about it in the context of right view, wrong view? Yes, so right view can be understood in a number of different ways. There's a whole sutta on right view in, in the Majjhima, I think it's number nine, which describes it in a number of ways. In shorthand, I would say right view is understanding the three characteristics. This is where insight picks up in the Vipassana 
understanding is understanding the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Wrong view, in very short, is not understanding the three characteristics. There's one other area where insight goes, which is Nibbana. So understanding the three characteristics and understanding Nibbana are the three kinds of right understanding, you know, as it seems to me. The classical definition of right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are built around craving and grasping and the release from craving and grasping. Craving and grasping happen because of not understanding the three characteristics. So they're very closely related. So for a shorthand, I think the three characteristics are a good way to explain um, right view and wrong view. The right view and wrong view? No, the three oh, the three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Anicca, dukkha, anatta in Pali. And so the question on right view, could you state, could you... Oh, how to, that's where we're going. Thank you. <laughs> this is going to tie, this is going to tie both together. Let's see, let's have some microphones on the right now. Where have we... Don, why don't, could you read number seven? We're going to tie together right view and the three characteristics. Bhikkhus, what do you think? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine. This I am. This is myself. No, venerable sir. Repeated for feeling, perception, formations, consciousness. Mm, Thank you. So, let me ask you all. Is any form of matter permanent? No. So all material form is impermanent. And what is impermanent? Suffering or happiness. Now, you have to understand the Pali terms here are dukkha or sukha. But dukkha carries not just painful associations, but it's more like, is it capable of alleviating our underlying discontent? Is, it, is any form of material form ultimately satisfying? Does, can it give ultimate satisfaction? No. So in the Buddhist terms, that is unsatisfactory or dukkha. Translated here is suffering, but the flavor is ultimately unsatisfactory. Um, so the happiness here means lasting happiness. Is it ultimately unsatisfactory, or is it capable of giving a lasting happiness? Well, it's ultimately unsatisfactory, so it's called suffering. Is what is impermanent, ultimately unsatisfactory, and subject to change fit to be regarded, this is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, venerable sir. Well, why would that be? Isn't it because if we grab one of these impermanent things and claim it as self, at some point we're going to get disappointed because it's going to change. Now, these three formulations point to three different ways of looking. This is mine refers to possession. Possession is rooted in what mind state? Greed, right? Desire, wanting. Everything that comes into our possession, we get because we wanted it, 
right? We went out and acquired it out of desire. So this is mine is referred to as the expression of craving, tanha. This I am, this is the um, kind of what we went to with the five ways we conceive ourselves: body, owner, emotions, owner, observer. We're establishing a sense of self through these contacts in one way or another. This establishing of a sense of a self is called mana. The Pali word mana, usually translated as conceit. But here I want to tie conceit into quotation three in whatever way they conceive of self. The fact is ever other than that. So conceit is a thinking of ourselves as a self in some way. That's mana. And then the third one, this is myself, this is when we actually take a belief that the self is located in one place or another. It's more than just a fleeting sense, but we truly believe it. Yeah, I have a self, and I'll tell you where it's located. You know, and then we give, a, we give a location. So that's a view. So this third one is called ditti. So these are the expressions of tanha, mana, and ditti. And each one is a little bit different flavor. Now the next quote is going to um, go into the view part a little more and show how these get formed. So could you read please number eight? Venerable Sir, how does personality view come to be? An untaught ordinary person regards material form as self or self as possessed of material form or material form as in self or self as in material form. Repeated for other four aggregates. This is how personality view comes to be. Yeah, thank you. So the self is getting established in relation to one or other of the aggregates. This is how we take the self to be a certain way. Now this sounds complicated, but we've seen these already. And it's not as complicated as it sounds at first. So let's take some examples. Regards material form as self. This is, I am the body. This is the first example that we came to this morning. Regards self as possessed of material form. This is, I own the body. I'm the owner of the body. Or, material form as in self. This one we haven't come to yet, but let's, let's hypothesize. Have you heard of spiritual teachings that say, what you really are is not this body or the emotions or the thoughts which are all fleeting. You are the vast awareness that includes them all. That's what your real self is. This vast awareness that includes all the transitory things is what you really are. And you're not the transitory things. So in this one, the self is considered to be the vast awareness. Then the body is within the self. So this is an example of the third. Regards material form as in self. Self considered to be the vast awareness the real self, and the body is just within that. The problem with this view of things, there is a vast awareness within which there is this body, 
but there's no need to claim it as self. It's just an aspect of nature. So identifying it as I is something extra that we don't need. It just complicates things. So, Then the fourth one regards self as in material form. This is the sense, oh, the observer's actually in the middle of my head. The real self is inside the body and it's looking out. So we've seen this one also. So these are real ways that people identify and believe in the self. And each of them has its own, its own problems. This is how personality view comes to be. So let's see what the solution is. So this is what you might say a summation of right view. Sure, just pass the mic up. Number nine is on page two. Therefore, bhikkhus, any kind of material form, whatever, should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Any kind of feeling, whatever, any kind of perception, whatever, any kind of formations, whatever, any kind of consciousness, whatever, should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Yeah, thank you. So basically, the sense of self gets constructed when we link the idea of I or my to one of the phenomena of the five aggregates, or you could say the six sense doors. Does the sense of self ever just come on its own? You ever just sitting there and it goes, I? (laughs) Are you just sitting there and it goes, my? No, it always comes in relation to some part of our experience, some limited part of our experience. And then we say, I am that or I own that. That's how the sense of I arises. But if we don't make that claim and connect it to I, there's no formation of self or of self-view. And that feels free. Because the self makes those connections out of greed, aversion, and delusion. Again, the formation of self is not an innocent, neutral activity. It's spurred by wanting or not wanting. So these reactive emotions are at the basis of claiming or pushing away. And so the self always involves us with some kind of difficulty, some kind of suffering. Let's take a couple of examples. It's kind of like when we claim a part of our experience and identify with it, we take a new birth. This is one way to understand birth and rebirth. We're reborn in the moment in a new self. So let's say, I'm sitting in meditation. I remember something somebody said to me that was offensive or unkind. And I hang on to that memory. Could be short, could be long, but I hang on to it. While I'm hanging on to it, I start going over in my mind what they said. Why would they have said that? They're such an unskillful person to say something like that. I start defending myself. I didn't do that at all. They misinterpreted it. Next time I see them, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that. How does all that feel? It's not pleasant, is it? Going over those things are 
Very unpleasant. Here we've taken a hold out of resentment, out of aversion, and we've been born into, let's call it, the angry victim. They did this to me and this is what I'm going to do back. So this is what we call an unhappy birth. But that unhappy birth is limited, right? You don't run over that all day, every day, for a long, long time. It may go on for a few minutes, may go on for an hour, may go on for half a day. But eventually that passes away. You let it go and the mind is back in a state of some kind of balance. So the birth was unhappy, but the death is kind of a relief. Now, there's another experience. Let's say you've just gone out on a date. You met this person for the first time. You know, you've been chatting over the internet, but you met this person for the first time. You go out on a date. You have dinner together. Nice meal, nice bottle of wine. Really enjoying the connection. The conversation is flowing. You know, think they're attractive. And you're on a high, right? There's this cloud of well-being. Oh, I might have a new friend. I might have a new relationship being born. This is such a delightful thing. And you float on this cloud of well-being because there's been some clinging to the date and the memory of the date. And you get home and you're going to bed for the night. And as you lie down, your stomach starts to hurt. And you realize, you know what? I was a little tense during that whole meal. I'm not digesting so well. And why was I tense? Because I'm not 100% sure that they liked me as much as I liked them. And maybe they didn't. And maybe I'm more interested than they are. Are they going to be interested in another date? Or are they going to say, no, I don't know what's going to... And so this nice cloud of well-being sort of turns into anxiety and self-doubt and desire and worry. And it's hard to get to sleep. And then there's insomnia. So here we'd say the date and holding on to it was a happy birth. But then at some point when it starts to fade, it's an unhappy death. So we either, we get happy births with unhappy deaths or we get unhappy births with happy deaths over and over and over again. And this is kind of the cycle of samsara. Either way we do it, when we create that sense of self, they're suffering. Could be subtle or it could be big. You know, when you look at things like a healthy life that turns into the pathway to dying, when you look at something like a long-term relationship that heads for divorce, when you look at a long successful career that leads to a firing, these are very, very painful things that have been taken by happy births that are leading to their dissolution. So Ajahn Chah used to say, it's like grabbing a hold of a poisonous snake. If you grab a hold of the head, you get bitten immediately. But if you grab a hold of the tail, the head will come around and bite you. So either way, we end up suffering. If we construct a sense of self and there's emotional content, which there always is, there will be suffering, either immediate or later. This is why the construction of self is problematic and why we want to look at it as a way to free ourselves. And when we see that there's another possibility, that's when the space of freedom starts to open up. And what is that other possibility? We don't take a hold. We don't claim any part of our experience as I or mine. Then we're in the place that the comment came from earlier about what's there when the dissolving has happened. 
there's a kind of empty, spacious awareness that has within it a quality of peace and a quality of ease and a quality of non-suffering. So letting go of this sense of self and the contraction that comes with it can open us into a feeling of relaxation, peace, and ease. And this is why we want to investigate the emptiness of self. So, you know, there's this famous story. Is there a question? Yeah, if we could pass a mic, please. Thank you. Um, I have a question about the in-between stage when you can't birth something and you can't let it die. For instance, a lot of people may be in two neutral situations. For instance, do I quit my job now and retire? And, you know, they're about equal. You know, some each one has a pro and con, and so you may be in this kind of... It's not a stage, of, it's limbo almost. Hmm. Not letting one die, not going forward. It kind of just, you know, they say you know what's inside, what you should do if you get clear, but you keep, I, I'm talking about me obviously, <laughs> you keep meditating mm-hmm. on it, but it's still no answer really emerges. Yeah. So what would you call this in between stage? Well, I would say that most likely it's a situation where the sense of self is kind of coming and going on a moment-to-moment basis. As you sit with the question, there may be times when there's a strong sense of self about it. And, oh, you know, I really want to keep contact with the people that I know there. I really like the income stream that comes from my current job. I'm on a project that could get really interesting down the road. So there are desire forces at work. And then looking at the cons, it could be, yeah, but my boss is getting kind of to be a pain in the butt and uh, I don't know how much longer I want to keep doing that commute because the Bay Area roadways are still getting worse and worse every year. So as each of those considerations comes up, you may feel a certain degree of selfing around the liking or disliking of each one. And then when you look into the possibility of retirement, similarly, there are going to be pros and cons there and you'll feel selfing coming and going around the advantages and disadvantages of the retirement situation. So I would say in, in looking at that, start to include that as part of your meditation. Where is the self getting formed around wanting? Where is it getting formed around not wanting, both with the job or with the retirement? And just have an open mind to the self coming and going on a, a smaller level. And when you feel pushes and pulls inwardly, that's a sign of the self getting activated. Now other times you might go through a meditation like that and some reflection and the whole thing settles and you don't consciously turn to those pro and con considerations and then at that time the self may have dissolved. And like you say, you you could call it limbo um, but limbo almost implies a period of waiting and you could instead call this a period of resting where you're not trying to choose or pick one or the other but you're just you've looked at the pluses you've looked at the minuses and you're just going to let them settle and that can be a place of real meditative ease and rest so I would kind of look for the momentary arisings of self and the times when it's really absent of that my own inclination when I make life choices like that 
is I go through the ups and downs of considering the pros and cons and the past and future, and then I let go of them. And at some point, some clarity comes about which one seems right or righter to Sometimes they're both good choices, but some inclination comes about which way I want to go. So I try, I try not to make decisions anymore, but I just hold the options and wait till a path becomes clear. Sometimes that means waiting a while. Yeah. But there, can be, there can be suffering, too, in the process. There can be. A lot of suffering. Yeah, there can be. But then, and to trust that the places of clarity or rest are where the best wisdom comes from. Okay, thanks. Okay. Let's take, uh, let's let Richard have a question. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So this goes to, let's say, as you're describing this dissolved space, Mm -hmm. okay? And I would say that the structure of the self that I've constructed and created also give me a sense of stability in the world. And the idea of letting that experience of the self dissolve is frightening. There's a fear that arises because I might lose my mind. You know, if I've had experiences like that in my previous life, Mm -hmm. that may be something that's difficult. How do you suggest working with that particular dilemma? Yeah, no, this is a great question. When When the self starts to become less constricted and open up and more space comes in, often that's an uncomfortable feeling. For people, so one of the first things that happens this happens a lot in meditation retreats. Now, I'd almost say it's the point of meditation retreats to let the self come unraveled, un- unentangled, unconfined, and the quality of space comes in, and then there's a sense, oh, is this safe? Fear comes up, anxiety comes up, like where am I? If there's all this space here, and I can't find myself the way that I used to think of myself. So this is an important point in meditation practice, and it happens, for I'd say, for most people who really go through this sense of deeply inquiring into the self. It becomes unsettling at some point because all the ways that we've been used to thinking of ourselves no longer quite hold together. And then, well, then who am I or what am I in the middle of all this space? So sometimes that can be unsettling, disconcerting, provoke anxiety, fear, terror. All these things are real. Okay. As a good Vipassana practitioner, what one does at that point is just note, oh, fear is arising. Let me open to this. So we have a lot of meditation instructions on how to relate to the hindrances. You know, you uh, feel it in the body. You notice where the sensations are. You open to the sensations. You go through the process of RAIN. Do you all know RAIN? Recognition, allowing, investigation, non-identification. You go through each of those steps. You open up. You create space around the fear. You allow the fear to be there. Eventually, you become comfortable with the fear. Fear is no problem. So you don't worry that you've lost this spacious quality. If fear is there, you relate with the fear. Eventually, you'll enter this spacious quality over you know, many different times of touching it and the fear won't arise. 
because you've allowed the fear. It's not that fear is a mistake. You're in a new territory. You need to allow the fear to come. That's fine. You feel unsettled. But more and more, you can open to this spacious awareness without the sense of anxiety or fear. Then you just have more and more confidence by experimenting. Oh, I can actually perform from this space of empty awareness. All the things that I've learned to do in my life work just as well from the space of empty awareness. In fact, they even work better because there's not so much constriction that's blocking it. So you get more and more confidence to just take that empty space out into your relations in the world. And it's very helpful because you're not so tied up within yourself. You don't have a strong self-identity you're trying to protect. You're more open in the world. And you're also not pinning self-identity onto other people as much. You kind of recognize, oh, they can be an empty space also. So it gives them more freedom. Now, sometimes people think, well, but my, myself was my grounding in the world. It was never there in the first place. So all the ways you've been relating to the world, you haven't had a self in any of that. It was never there. So it's not like you're losing anything. The self was never there to begin with. And yet, you knew how to perform. You knew how to relate. You knew how to talk to people. You knew how to respond. When someone called your name, you'd go, yeah? All that's still there. All those ways we've learned are still there. Okay, we'll take one more question, then I want to move on before lunch. Okay, we'll take two more, we'll take two more questions. So. Sometimes I, the way I experience what you're talking about is I experience that I don't have free will. I just do whatever I want to do. And it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's, also, it's also beautiful. It's mentally healthy. I accomplish things. I interact better with people. But it's really scary. Okay. I would just encourage you to um, continue to open to the fear that comes with that. And keep looking over time to see if it is a reliable place to come from. It actually always is. It's a much better place to be. And over time, the wisdom will grow that really confirms that. And the fear will decline just like it does in meditation. Just keep trusting it. And the fear will diminish. Yeah, thank you. What I wanted to ask... Closer? Like ice cream cone. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Matcha. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> uh, what I wanted to talk about was uh, rel- uh, related to what he talked about. Also, she mentioned making decisions and then how free will comes up. And then, if you're saying that there is no self as like this, if all the five aggregates are just, they just vanish then there's no question of free will to begin with because you're not there. There's no will. There's no decision. This is is exactly where I wanted to go next. So this this is perfect. Thank you. Thank you for the question. So the question is, who decides, right? If we're looking at all the ways that we identify, we looked at body, owner of body, emotions, owner of emotions, observer, 
One of the key ways we decide was summed up by our former president who said, I'm the decider. Remember that? I'm the decider. This is often how we feel it. I am the one who decides. I am the one who chooses to act or not to act, what to say, what not to say. So this sense of choice or decision is another place we identify. So let's look into this. This is the core meaning of volition. Volition is the poly, translation of the Pali term chetana, C-E-T-A-N-A. And it is the factor that lets us feel that a decision is being made, a choice is being made. This is the factor of will. It is, let's say, in a very simple way, the movement of the mind that precedes any voluntary bodily movement. So, for instance, if you were to raise your right hand right now, a signal from the mind has to come to the body to tell you to do that. So there's a volitional impulse created in the mind saying, raise the hand. If you stand up at the end of the meditation, there's a choice moment of volition that says, stand. It may, you may not hear the word stand, but the body will stand. And that comes because it's been given a directive from the mind. The body doesn't move without directives from the mind, except in things like when you're at the doctor. You know, there's a reflex movement. Or you roll over in sleep and you're not even aware of it. But in the course of our waking day, the body doesn't move unless there's a directive from the mind. That's the factor of volition. So in speaking and in acting, this volition is always there. In fact, it's said that the moment, there's a moment of volition in every single moment of conscious experience. So right now, your volition is to sit. Your volition is to listen. Your volition is to inquire. Those volitions are happening now. They're mental. They're not moving the body, but they're moving the mind. Where does volition come from? So the common assumption is that I am the decider. I choose to do an action or not. That there's an agent within this process that makes that decision. But the Buddhist understanding is not that way. Volition is simply another conditioned element of mind that is within the fourth aggregate of formations that arises based on causes and conditions, exerts its influence, passes away. Next moment comes along, another volition arises based on causes and conditions, exerts its influence, that moment passes away. So let's look at a, just to get a sense of some of these causes and conditions, let's look at a simple example. You're sitting in meditation, feel cold, so you pull up a shawl. You know, shawl's at your feet, you just pull it up. If somebody asked you what happened, you just say, I felt cold, so I put on a shawl. A very simple, right? But in meditative terms, when we look at what's happening, there's a lot more going on than that, okay? So I would say from the point of view of moment-to-moment mindfulness, the sequence was more something like this. Sensation in leg. Noticing cold. So there's mindfulness of sensation. There's identifying it 
as an element of cold. Um, Unpleasant feeling tone. Feeling of aversion coming up. Memory of warm. It could be another part of the body. It could be how I felt when I sat down. Some memory of warm comes up as contrast. Desire for warm arises. Memory of shawl. Maybe an image may just be the felt sense. Intention. Reach, pull, shawl. Ah, warm, pleasant, liking. So that volition was conditioned by an interplay between body sensations, thoughts, memories, mind states, wanting, aversion, that resulted in the volition arising that led the hand to reach to draw up the shawl. Then the volition is gone. No more volition. No more agent needed. So volition is just another dependently arisen factor of mind that leads in some cases to action. That's all it is. There's no one doing the willing. There's no one making the decision. Volition arises, actions happen. All causes and conditions. No self in any of it. Does that make sense? Now, volition is a... Okay, question. Yeah, is there a mic that we can pass over? I believe you. I'll just say that. I'm having a lot of trouble with that. Okay. I'm just having trouble accepting it. Like, I, I feel like... I feel like there has to be something. I, I mean... Yeah, I think that really blew my mind a little bit. (laughs) Okay, Okay. let's go into it a little more. It might answer the question. It's not that there's nothing there. Right. I I don't know if I can form the question in in words. It just... Let's go a little further and see if it takes care of the question. Okay. Yeah, it might. (laughs) So, volition is conditioned by the other factors that are present in the mind at the moment of acting. Volition can be conditioned by greed, aversion, and delusion, or it can be conditioned by their opposites. What's the opposite of greed? Generosity. What's the opposite of aversion? Loving kindness. What's the opposite of delusion? Clarity or wisdom, right? So the mind can be influenced by greed, aversion, or delusion, or it can be influenced by uh, generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. It's these factors of mind that lead to volition being skillful or unskillful. So it's not that there's nothing there. All these factors of mind are contributing, conditioning volition, and leading to action or restraint from action. You know, the five precepts are about we have an urge, but we don't carry it out because we've committed to the restraint of unskillful actions. So similarly, we want to carry that uh, intention through our whole lives. As practitioners, we want to encourage wholesome actions and we want to restrain unwholesome actions. So what what is responsible for that? Wisdom. When the factor of wisdom is present, 
we encourage the wholesome act and we restrain the unwholesome act. Now, this ties into another really important concept, and that is karma. Karma is based on volition. So, if where the microphone ended up, if you would read quote 14, please. It is volition that I call kar- karma for having willed one acts by body, speech, or mind. Yeah, thank you. It's very simple, isn't it? It is volition that I call kama. Kama is the Pali. Karma is the Sanskrit. We're more used to karma. I'll mostly say karma. Both of them just mean action. It was a simple word in ancient India that just meant action. But a lot of different philosophies back then had different interpretations. Some said actions don't have consequences. Okay? I can go kill you and that doesn't have any consequences for me. You know, I can pillage the countryside with my army and that doesn't have any consequences for me. Um, Other people said um, actions are predetermined. Actions are already, it's already decided what you're going to do for the rest of your life. There's no real choice in it. It's predetermined. That's called fatalism. So the Buddha said, you all don't understand action. He said, because you're just engaging in philosophical speculative views. But from my own personal insight, I've seen what action comes from and where it leads. So I want to tell this story because we don't get to talk about this stuff very often. So I want to tell the story of the night of the Buddha's enlightenment. And this is as it's recounted in... um, one of the suttas, and right now I've forgotten whether it's Majima 4 or Majima 26. Both those discourses describe the experience of his enlightenment from, from different points of view. I think this is Majima 4, but I'll go through what it says there. So the Buddha, you recall, was still a bodhisattva. When he sat down under the Bodhi tree... In near the town of Gaia in northern India, and he resolved not to get up until he had found release from suffering, final release from suffering. Then he described his experience, he sat up all night, as having different insights in three different watches of the night. So in the first watch of the night, what he turned his concentrated mind to and recollected were his past lives. And he recounts that he saw one past life, five past lives, ten, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand. Here I was born of such and such a clan, I had such and such a name, and I died, you know, with these circumstances. Over and over again, many, many, many past lives he saw of his own. In the second watch of the night, he turned his attention in a different direction. He cultivated what's called the divine eye, And he used the divine eye to watch other beings dying and taking rebirth. Dying and taking rebirth over and over and over again. Everywhere he turned, he could see this happening. Now, I want to suggest, and and he saw that some beings were reborn into favorable circumstances, some beings were reborn into circumstances with a lot of suffering. So I want to provide a speculative link. It isn't described in the discourse. But why might the Buddha have turned his attention in this direction? 
Okay, he was intent on ending suffering. And so first, I'll suggest, he wanted to examine his own past lives to see the mixture of happiness and unhappiness that could come in a life. And so he saw that happening many times over. Happy life, difficult life, they all end in dying, but they all end in being reborn again. So then I'm going to suggest that he had a question between the first watch of the night and the second, and that question was, what leads to a happy birth and what leads to an unhappy birth? So he turned his eye to watching many, many, many beings dying and taking birth, and living and dying and taking birth. And he tried to understand what were the cause for, causes for happy births and what were the causes for unhappy births. And what he saw is that beings who had lived their lives performing wholesome actions, were born into favorable or happy circumstances. And people who had spent their lives performing cruel, unkind, harming actions were born into lives characterized by a lot of unhappiness. This is the first kind of insight into the law of karma. And he had it before he was awakened using the psychic powers that came out of his concentration. Now, I'm going to suggest that after the second watch, what the Buddha saw was I could live a happy life doing good deeds and I'd have another happy birth. Because you know, he was enjoying a pretty happy birth. I could live a, you know, being really unkind and I have a very, very unhappy birth. But either way, they don't get me out of aging, sickness, and death. And then again, being born and getting older and sick and dying. And then again. So he saw that whether you engaged in good actions or bad actions, you were still going to be on the wheel of repeated death and rebirth. Death and rebirth. And I suggest that this did not provide the conclusive end to suffering that he was looking for. So in the third watch of the night, he looked for the destruction of the impurities in his own mind that would lead to taking birth again. And it was in the third watch of the night, just toward dawn, that he was enlightened, that that enlightenment removed greed, aversion, delusion from his mind, And at that point, he said, birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. He had ended the round of rebirth by ending the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. Because it is only those forces that provide the, the impetus for rebirth in the realm of samsara. So this is a short account of the three insights, I believe it's Majima 4, that he describes in the night of his awakening. And I think they're sequential. I think there's a reason that he went through the insights in that order. And that the third insight, the insight that led to his full awakening, came from understanding the law of karma and the round of uh, rebirth and samsara. 
So volition is the seed of karma. Um, So let's read a couple of more of the quotes because they indicate some of the importance of this factor. Uh, Sorry? Yeah, I'd like to read a couple of more quotes before we get into the question. So if you could pass that, yeah, if you'd pass that down. Number uh, 15. Beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. Their actions are the womb from which they are born. Their actions are their friend, their refuge. Whatever acts they perform, good or bad, of those they will be the heirs. Okay. This is the basic explanation of the teaching on karma. That when we perform any action out of this quality of volition, it will influence what comes into our life in future. And actions done from the wholesome impulses, which are generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, will lead to wholesome results for us. The way the Buddha actually described it, he said they will lead to results that are wished for, desirable, and agreeable. And when we act out of greed, aversion, delusion, those will lead to results in our lives that are not wished for, undesirable, and disagreeable. So this is the basic teaching on karma. And then he goes a little bit further with number 16, which brings in the question of, of birth. Could you read number 16? Yeah, just to your right. Oh. Yeah, do you have one? No. I don't have the... You want me to read? Would you please, number sure. six, number 16? Number, number 16. Number 16. Grain, possession, money, all the things you love, servants, employees, and associates, none of these can you take with you. You must cast them all aside. But whatever karma is made by you, whether by body, speech, or mind, that is your real possession, and you must fare according to that karma. That karma will follow you, just as the shadow follows its owner. Therefore, do good actions, gather benefit for the future, Goodness is the mainstay of beings in the thereafter. Good, thank you. So, we are now opening up the whole topic of karma and rebirth. And this is an area that is unfamiliar to Westerners in general. It is an area that um, many Westerners meet with great skepticism, which is fine. Um, It is an area that uh, we don't often get a chance to talk about in the Dharma setting, yet it is a really central part of the Buddha's teachings. You can hear it in the Night of His Enlightenment account, and you can hear it in quotations like these. So this tends to open up a lot of questions, and um, we can open now for those. So if you'd pass it up and to to the right, we have a question. Uh, 
So if there is no self and if we are all connected, then who is carrying my karma? <laughs> Another great question. And um, so this is really the other reason that I wanted to bring up uh, volition connected, because volition connects to karma. So we need to look into this in a, in a kind of bigger way. In other words, the basic question is, if there is no self, who is reborn? It's a short way of saying it. Somebody asked the Buddha at the same time. I, they, I think they said something like, if there is no self, then who is affected by actions performed by the not-self? <laughs> Similar question. And basically what the Buddha said is, you haven't been listening to me. But we're not going to take that easy escape route. So... When we look at this factor of volitional formations, which is the fourth aggregate, this is basically our thoughts and feelings, our speech and actions in the world. What we see is this is where the karmic material lies. Volitional formations come out of our intention or volition, and this plants it in the field of karma. So the fourth aggregate is basically karmic stuff. We could call it karmic formations, if you like. Now, when we talk about personality, like if, you know, I know you as one personality, I know you as a different personality, I know me as a different personality, there's a way in which there's a consistency to our personalities, right? Which is, you know, we have certain patterns. If you think about what goes into personality, how you identify someone's personality, aren't these patterns really described as how the person thinks, how the person feels, how the person speaks, and how the person behaves. Is that more or less a reasonable definition of personality? How you think, feel, speak, and act. That's how I think of personality. That's the same definition we gave for volitional formations. So what I'm suggesting is that volitional formations is a synonym for personality. Now, when we say there's a consistency to someone's personality, we mean that over time, you know, there are similar patterns going on. Is there any entity at the center who is that personality? Or is personality just the repetition of actions of generosity or actions of stinginess? Actions of kindness or actions of cruelty? Actions that are wise and skillful or actions that are deluded and unhelpful? Does there have to be any self at the center of personality? There, hmm? Use the mic, please. Yeah. Need something permanent to stick with because personality changes during time. It's impermanent. Personality is very changeable, isn't it? There's a fluidity to personality. Always, ch all these formations are changing, but it feels like there's some stickiness. There's some consistency. 
So I'm going to suggest that that consistency is only karmic habit. But that karmic habit is a powerful force. You know, neuroscientists are discovering this. That certain actions wire the neurons together in a certain way. And then they tend to fire together that way again. Neurons that fire together wire together. I think that's the way they say it. Karmic habits are the same way. You know, the Buddha said it this way. Whatsoever a person inclines their mind to, that becomes the habit of their mind. If they incline their mind to thoughts of generosity, loving kindness, and compassion, that becomes the habit. If the mind inclines to thoughts of greed, ill will, or cruelty, that becomes the habit of the mind. So we have all formed our personalities basically by repeating these habit patterns again and again and again. And they have each moment, it has come anew out of our own volition. But our volition tends to repeat itself because that's the way habits work. But there's nothing fixed in habits. There's nothing fixed in patterns. So they can all be changed. They're all subject to change. Personality is subject to change. So in the beginning, yeah, question? Can we get a mic? It's close. And yeah, and hand the mic that way. Liz, may I go first? Oh, sorry. You have a phone. Go ahead. I was just going to say, somehow the way I'm hearing this, it sounds like personality is merely a perception. It's not merely perception, uh, because the forces of greed or generosity, the force of uh, aversion or loving kindness, those are real things. So there are real forces at work in the mind, whether we see them clearly or not. Yeah, but the forces are there and acting. Um, You know, somebody who commits a murder is not mindful of their motivation generally, but the motivation is still acting. That force of hatred is acting, even though they haven't seen it, you know, or perceived it clearly. But the force is still there. Yeah. Next. Um, Based on this discussion, could you comment on uh, there are no enlightened people there are only enlightened activities. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I would see it a little differently. I think there are enlightened people. I, one another way I've heard it said is people say the personality doesn't get enlightened. Um, and, you know, I think there's a way in which that's true. But I want to describe what I understand as the process of purification in terms of karmic patterns as a way of answering that that question. So when we come into Dharma, and by the way, we're going to break for lunch in about 10 minutes or so. So if you can hold on a little longer, lunch is coming. Um, But I'd like to finish up this, this segment. Personalities have been formed, the Buddha would say, from past lives, but we could all attest from childhood on, right? Our personality has been forming ever since we were little kids. You know, it's been conditioned by parents and teachers and friends and the culture. So many different influences. But we've been along for the ride by giving support to our own personal habits. Right? We have volitionally chosen 
kind acts or unkind acts, acts of wisdom or acts of delusion. We have been forming the personality all along. So there is this karmic pattern that's in place. When we first come into practice, we don't have a lot of understanding about what makes for happy outcome than what makes for unhappy outcome. But as we come into practice and we learn first the teachings on the precepts, we refrain from complicating our lives with really overt, unkind actions. That's basically a karmic instruction. Stay away from killing, stealing, lying, etc. As we start to examine what's here as we come into practice, we usually see a mix of wholesome and unwholesome stuff going on. Yeah, we have some wisdom, we have some loving kindness, we have some generosity. We also have a fair amount of confusion. The hindrances of sense desire and aversion are at play. We see this kind of mixture. And this mixture is keeping our life going in the same channel that it's always been, which is a mix of some happiness and some unhappiness. The purpose of meditation practice is to clear up the unwholesome habits of mind and root us in wholesome habits of mind. That's all that Dharma practice is about. It's about changing the habits that lead us into suffering and putting in habits that lead us out of suffering, that lead us into happiness. So you could say that our whole aim in Dharma practice is to understand these karmic habits and to purify them. Make sure that the things we're expressing in the world are more and more and more born out of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And less and less and less born out of greed, aversion, and delusion. That's the project of Dharma. We do this little by little by little. By sitting on the cushion, by developing clarity about our feelings, clarity about our thoughts, bringing that clarity into the world of relationship and our actions in the world, And little by little, our personality starts to change. I'm not saying our basic personality type changes. But the individual flow of wholesome and unwholesome that makes us up starts to change. And a lot more unwholesome comes and a lot less unwholesome comes into our being and our actions and our speech. So the personality is being transformed through the influence of our Dharma practice. And especially as we grow in wisdom. It's really wisdom that is the ultimate purifying factor. Because wisdom sees what's going to lead to happiness for myself and others, what's going to lead to unhappiness for myself and others. And more and more and more, our choices, our volition, comes out of a more purified mind. It comes out of less greed, aversion, delusion, out of more generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. As our karmic choices become clearer and wiser, those benefits come into our life. All the benefits of the path come into our lives. And so the, um, the quality of our being in the world changes and the quality of our relationships change. Now, for someone who has become fully enlightened, as it's understood in our tradition, the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion are no longer there, completely uprooted. The Buddha said that they are um, cut off like a palm stump, no longer subject to future arising. 
That phrase comes in a lot in the suttas. Cut off like a palm stump, no longer subject to future arising. So at that point, I would say such a being has completely purified the mind and is no longer capable of harm in the world, of any kind of intentional harm. There may be accidental harm. In driving a car, one might run over a bug. In not understanding someone's background, one might say something that was uh, felt as hurtful. But no intentional harm comes out of such a being. So such a being, I would say, is an enlightened being who has pulled out the kilesas of greed, aversion, and delusion and has no more destructive impulses. So I think that's possible. It is the end of karma. When the Buddha described the quality or the state of a fully enlightened being, he said such a person has ended karma. And he was, then he was asked, well, how do you end karma? He said, well, there's a certain kind of action that brings karma to an end. And what he said that action is, is the Eightfold Path. Very interesting. He's described the Eightfold Path as action that is neither bright nor dim. It's not like going in a purely pleasurable direction, but it's not going in a painful direction. And he said, this karma that's neither bright nor dim is the Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And it's that action that leads to the end of karma. Okay, let's take a couple questions right before we break. Okay, an announcement too. Are there mics nearby? If we could start over on the left. One, one back, please, and then we'll work. Three questions and then lunch. I find myself confused again, so I'd like um, to share what you talked when you spoke before about death and rebirth in 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 each moment. Mm-hmm. That made a lot of sense to me. I really appreciated that, by the way. Uh, I never heard uh, it explained that way, and it was very helpful. But when you answered that young woman's question about um, what gets reborn, I just find myself confused. I don't. Maybe the better question is, is it important for me to understand? I, I don't personally, I'm Western, I don't, I'm agnostic about the, the question of whether I get reborn as a rabbit or whatever, but do I need to know that? I mean, is that important for the, for the path and for ending suffering that I believe that or know about that? Okay, great question. I didn't actually finish up with an answer to the woman's question. It's too bad she's out of the room because... Now she's going to miss this part. So let me take the general question first. Is it important whether you believe in rebirth or not? Uh, The Buddha thought it was important enough to talk about it a lot. So I'll put it out in that way. Um, Do you need to believe in rebirth to be a good Buddhist? No. There are plenty of good practicing Buddhists who are agnostic on the question of rebirth, and that can suit them fine. So I think it's a very personal thing. I, think it's, uh, I don't think it's my job to convince you what to believe in, but I think it's my job to tell you what the Buddha said. And then it's your you know, part to figure out what of it you want to take on or not. Now, could it be useful to believe in rebirth? I think it could be very useful. So why would that be useful? The way I see my life 
and my practice. I feel committed to the full project of enlightenment, however long it takes. So I'm basically left with, here's my situation, because I I do believe in rebirth. Anything I don't clear up of greed, aversion, and delusion in this life, I'm going to be left with for the next. And I'm going to have to take care of it there. Or the continuation of this mind-body process is going to take, take it up there. So there's going to be more work to do. So the more uh, I can work through to purify the heart and mind in this body, the less cleanup there's going to be later. And I have good circumstances right now. I have the circumstances to hear the Dharma and practice the Dharma. In my next birth, I don't know that that will be the case. If I'm born and I don't have access to the Dharma, chances are I'm going to fall into confusion and suffering. But I have the opportunity now to practice in that direction. So that's my personal kind of take on it. But everybody has to make their own relationship to it. When I came into Buddhist practice, I didn't believe in rebirth either. My training was in science and um, computers. So I didn't have any inclination in that direction. But what I did uh, resolve was not to close my mind to the idea. I said, I'm not going to take a stance of disbelieving this because the fact is I don't know. So I'm just going to rest open with the possibility. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. Let me just stay open and I'll listen to the different voices that come you know, over years of practice and experience. And so I've listened to a lot of discussion. Um, I've talked with people who have clear experiences of their own uh, previous births. You know, you can choose not to believe them, but um, I've had those experiences. Uh, so it's, you know, it's settled out that it makes sense to me. And the fact that Buddha talks about it so much, you know, it seems like a really important piece of, of his teaching. Um, so it's helpful for me as a motivator. Oh, this stuff isn't going to go away at death. This stuff is going to keep creating trouble. You know. As for who is reborn, I didn't get to that question, but the reason I got into personality being fluid, I'll just say it the way Ajahn Amaro said it. He said the process of going from one moment to the next is not very different than the process of going from one birth to the next. In other words, when you go from one moment to the next, is there any being who continues unchanged? No. But there's a karmic pattern that provides some predictability. So take a look in your immediate moment-to-moment experience in meditation. As you go from one moment to the next, is there anything that remains the same? Body, thoughts, emotions? Not necessarily. But there's a kind of continuity You know, I don't suddenly wake up as the Dalai Lama out of my meditation. I wake up as Guy. So there's some continuity, which is the karmic pattern continuing, and that's what he said happens from one birth to the next. There's not an entity that continues, but the karmic patterns continue somehow on on the thread of consciousness. So let's read, I'll just read it quickly. Quote 17. It is the stream of consciousness coming from the preceding existence that functions as the nutriment consciousness by generating, at the moment of conception, the initial rebirth consciousness, which in turn brings forth name and form. Name and form is shorthand for body and mind. 
So there is consciousness from the previous birth somehow carrying karmic imprints that joins with the conception, in human terms, it'd be sperm and egg, and that forms the basis for mind and body of the next being, the next birth. In a nutshell, that's how the Buddha described the mechanics of rebirth. So I won't go into any more, but there was another question, if we could have the mic. So so to a strict materialist, we're all just electrochemical robots. Um, I picked, you know, I raised my hand and holding this mic because I'm programmed to do so in, in accordance to certain inputs. And sometimes Buddhism sounds like it's awful close to that. <laughs> and I just wonder if you had any comment. Yeah, I, no, no it's, no, it's a great question, and, it, and I wanted to come back to it as part of volition because Buddhism doesn't see it that way doesn't see that we are just the kind of robotic carrying out of prior conditioning. That is definitely not the view of Buddhism. The Buddha described that view as fatalism. And he said the problem with fatalism is it undermines effort. If you adopt a fatalistic view, you don't take on the effort that the path requires. You know, effort is one of the key parts of the Eightfold Path. So, the, the question comes, though, is our volition completely free? Is there totally free will? And here's where it's really important to look at the other factors in the mind that, from which volition springs. Because the factors can either be wholesome, you know, generosity, loving kindness, wisdom, or they can be unwholesome, greed, aversion, delusion. So depending on what what's present in the mind, that's where our actions and choices come from. The skillful thing is to act as though you have free will. If you act as though you have free will and choose the path, the path will unfold. We start to recognize that in the beginning of the path, our actions have a heavy influence of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so I would say the will is not entirely free at that point. It's being conditioned by past unwholesome karmic habits. But as the path goes on, and more the factors of the mind are wisdom, kindness, and generosity, the choices become more and more free. So the sense of freedom, both in our inner life and in the choices we make, grows and grows and grows over the course of the path. But if you can't believe that there's any free will in the beginning, you won't take up the path. So it's really important to act as though there is free will. And over time, you'll see how much old conditioning is influencing the choices, but that becomes less and less. Until, you know, at the end, the fully enlightened one is completely free of karma. It's the end of karma. But all along the way, we feel the karmic patterning getting weaker and weaker. And there's a growing sense of choosing out of wisdom, choosing out of kindness, choosing out of generosity that in turn, you know, makes the path unfold even better. So little by little, there's more freedom in free will. But it's helpful to start as though you believe it's true or you won't start. There was one other question on this. Yes, if we could pass, just pass the microphone behind you. 
it was about uh, personality. Um, so, um, you know, I, I'm inclined to believe what you were saying, and and yet I don't have any kids of my own. But when I hear parents talk about their children, they seem to always say they were born with a personality. Um, and I think even Jack Cornfield mentioned that we're born with a personality in one of his books. I believe I'm not positive. Um, so I so I guess I'm I'm still curious about that. Mm-hmm. From a Buddhist point of view, well, first of all, I just want to validate what you say about parents. Ever every parent I've talked to said that their child had a personality as soon as they came out of the womb, basically. So if parents are here, you know, you might have noticed that, especially people have more than one child. Wow, they're so different. Um, so we human beings seem to have unique personalities from very early on. So from a Western materialist point of view, that could come primarily out of genetics, could come partly out of the experience of being in the mother's womb. And I think both of those are conditioning factors. From a Buddhist point of view, personality also has a lot to do with past karma past karmic habits. You know, I think about Mozart composing a sonata at age three or something like that, and I think, wow, that sounds like old karma to me, you know. Um, but I don't, I don't know that for sure. So I would say that the, the basic inclination or tendency of personality is set quite young, but it's very malleable. Personality is very malleable. And it's not, as I said, not so much that a personality type changes. Like some people are more heart-oriented, some people are more wisdom-oriented. Some people are more faith-oriented, some people are more insight-oriented. That may not change. Both, all those conditions lead to liberation. So the kind of paramis that are foremost for someone, those paramis may still be foremost, you know, all through their life. And the ones that are weak may be relatively weak throughout their life. And you could call that, you know, kind of a dharmic personality. But the important thing to understand is that karma is um, changeable, and particularly that the substitution of wholesome mental habits for unwholesome mental habits is wide, wide open. And within whatever kind of personality we grow up with, it has strengths that can grow into the wholesome qualities of the dharma, and we can transform it. Okay, so that may be a good note on which to wrap up the morning. So, Steve.